Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that uh, you are our rock and our redeemer, and that we have a sure and solid basis for standing before you this morning, uh, rooted ultimately in our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we reflect on his word and his teaching this morning, particularly in Luke chapter 11, uh, please may you speak to us such that we live out uh, your call to us as your people and more deeply and more faithfully, uh, such that we live out the life of disciples who truly follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we are tracking with Jesus, if you remember, on the road uh, to Jerusalem, uh, literally, because He is on the road to Jerusalem, uh, and figuratively as well, because we're also sitting at His feet and learning, because as we travel with Him, uh, we are learning about discipleship, what it means to follow Him. Uh, we are apprentices uh, working out what it means practically to trust and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this passage, we are tutored in one of the most basic necessities of any Christ-following disciple, and that is prayer. Verse 1. One day, uh, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Uh, when we consider Jesus' life and ministry, we naturally think of his, his wise, authoritative teaching. We think of his miraculous powers, and of course, of his atoning death. But it is easy to overlook another very central and vital aspect of Jesus' time on earth, and that is his incredible prayer life. Uh, Jesus was a great man of prayer. Uh, Jesus' prayer life gets more airtime in Luke's gospel than in any of the other gospel accounts. It's actually mentioned nearly a dozen times. And the centrality and vitality of Jesus' prayer life is not lost on his disciples. And indeed, it prompts them to ask him to teach them to pray. Now, it's reasonable to assume that they were in awe of Jesus' prayer life. Uh, they would have seen that Jesus has this unique passion and zeal for prayer. And he has this unprecedented intimacy with the Father. And they too want that for themselves. They want a living, breathing, closer communion with God. And so they ask him, teach us to pray. Now, if prayer was such an indispensable part of Jesus' life, how much more are we in need of time away with God in prayer? Uh, it's been said, as much or more by praying than by all our doing. Uh, we naturally, of course, lean towards activism, uh, getting things done and often allow prayer to be squeezed out. And so Jesus teaches them what has been called uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, technically, it would be more accurate to refer to it as the Disciples' Prayer, as it is for all those who want to follow Christ across the centuries. Therefore, uh, we come to Jesus with the same request as those first-century disciples, Lord, teach us. To pray. Now, the Lord's Prayer in Luke 
is slightly shorter than the more familiar version of the Lord's Prayer taught in Matthew chapter 5. That was a separate preaching and teaching occasion than this one, but the essence of these two prayers is the same. Now, often we think of the Lord's Prayer primarily in terms of our own private, individual prayer lives, and that's legitimate. However, when we look more closely at Jesus' opening words, and indeed the whole tenor of the prayer, we realize that actually it has a communal focus. Uh, Verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Uh, the you here is plural. It's not just to individuals in a group, but to a group as a whole. So it's like a family prayer. At this point, it becomes even clearer when we notice that the entire prayer is in what's called the first person plural, not the first person singular. It's about us and we, not I and me. So we don't pray, um, it's not give me my daily bread, it's give us our daily bread. It's not forgive my sins, it's rather it's forgive us our sins. Uh, Do you get the point? This is a corporate prayer. It's a prayer that we should pray as a church. It's a family prayer. Uh, Through our faith in Christ, we all have a a faith bond together. We've each taken up the right to become a child of God through our faith in Christ. And together, therefore, we are addressing our Father in heaven as a family. Therefore, uh, this morning, uh, we will lean towards applying this more at the level of our church life, of course, whilst not losing sight of the application to us individually. Now, the structure of the Lord's Prayer in Luke consists of two petitions uh, concerning God, followed by three petitions concerning ourselves. So firstly, uh, the first position concerning God. We've got two. We've got firstly, enhance God's reputation. And secondly, the prayer to extend God's rule. Let's look at the first. So the first, to enhance God's reputation. Verse 2 continues, uh, hallowed be your name. Uh, we don't use the term hallowed very frequently these days. Uh, cricket enthusiasts, in other words, 98% of the Australian population may talk of the hallowed turf of the SCG. Uh, If we hallow something, we acknowledge that it's very special and we respond to it accordingly uh, with a sense of awe and a sense of reverence. We wouldn't just walk on the SCG turf in ordinary shoes. We'd remove them, of course. It's something that we cherish as being of supreme worth and value. And therefore, to hallow God's name is to acknowledge it is a very special thing. God's name is holy. And accordingly, we respond to it with appropriate reverence, honor, and respect. Uh, We want God's name to be honored by all that we say and all that we do. It's a prayer for our lives to demonstrate and reflect God's holiness. Or to put it negatively, that we don't want to soil or to spoil God's holy reputation through our unholiness. And that is the heart of the prayer when we pray, hallowed be your name. And this, of course, certainly applies to our lives as individuals. 
And we need to each ask, are there areas of my life and conduct that dishonor God, that don't bring honor to his name? But it also applies to us as a church. Does the quality of our community life together reflect this holiness? Now, I am aware that there are many really healthy discussions underway at present amongst you all in regards to the recent challenges to live lives of love, to be welcoming, to be hospitable, and to be inclusive. And that's wonderful to hear. And may I encourage you to continue reflecting and ruminating with the goal of honoring God's name and God's reputation. So that's the first petition, upwards to God, to enhance God's reputation. Secondly, to extend God's rule. After praying, after praying for God's reputation to be enhanced, we then pray for God's rule to be extended. Uh, verse 2 continues, your kingdom come. Uh, you see, God's kingdom uh, is another way of talking about God's rule. And when we pray your kingdom come, we are asking for God's rule to be extended. Uh, there are two senses in which we can pray for God's kingdom to come. Uh, the first sense, of course, is the reference to the, the future. Uh, we look ahead to the full and the final arrival of the kingdom in all its glory. And this is when Christ, of course, will return to restore creation to perfection and his rule will banish sin, injustice, and chaos in totality. So when we feel the weight of life in a fallen world, we do pray, your kingdom come with an eye to that future coming of the kingdom. In other words, we're praying, come Lord Jesus, come. But the second sense in which we pray for God's kingdom to come is in the present. And it's the ongoing alignment of our lives with the rule of Christ. Uh, in this shortened version of the Lord's Prayer, uh, the phrase, uh, your will be done, is, is absent, but it is embedded in the request for God's kingdom to come. That is because as Christ's kingdom comes, so lives come to sit in greater obedience and submission to his rule and will. And when our wills want to go their own way, being in the kingdom means that our wills are redirected to align with God's will. Uh, that's why repentance is always tied with the proclamation of the kingdom. Did you notice whenever the kingdom is proclaimed, it comes with also a message to repent, to align our wills to that of the kingdom. Uh, Mark 1 verse 15 is an example. The kingdom of, of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So, uh, we ask ourselves these diagnostic questions in what ways is God calling us to obey Him? What are the particular areas, both individually and as a church, where we need to change? Where are our words and deeds for failing to bring God glory? So having prayed for the holiness and the kingdom of our Father in heaven, we then turn to pray for our own needs on earth. Because the remainder of the Lord's Prayer in Luke breaks down to three petitions, three requests for ourselves. And we're going to see uh, it's for us to provide, us for, uh, provide for us daily, 
to pardon us daily and to protect us daily. So firstly then, to provide for us daily. Verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. Uh, By teaching us to pray for our daily bread, Jesus is calling us to recognize our daily dependence on our Heavenly Father's provision. Now think about it. Uh, Children look to their parents in simple trust to put food on the table. Uh, Children in a family are not normally sent out to work, although maybe that's a good idea. Uh, They shouldn't be concerned about the provision of their basic needs. That is the responsibility of the parents. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. As His children, we look in humble trust to Him to provide all we need for our life on earth. Now, two applications flow out of this, uh, trust and secondly, commitment. And under the heading of trust, firstly, let's think about trust at the level of our church life together before we consider the application to us as individuals. As a church family, we have generally been quite hand-to-mouth when it comes to the finances. But God has always provided, and not least through your generosity. But over time, numbers are slowly being eroded, and when we look at the future, we may have a sense of anxiety. Where will the money come from? And as we look to the future, we can trust God to provide for as long as He wants us to remain as a congregation of His people here. Now, there may come a point where God's will is that we no longer operate as a congregation. God may want us to invest our lives in other churches local to us, and that's okay. God's will is best. We can trust Him. And that trust also operates at an individual level. Uh, Different stages of life present different financial stresses. Uh, We may be worried about meeting the future needs of our kids, whether it be material or otherwise. And we may have concern as to whether our super will be sufficient when we retire. And if we do have anxieties about our needs, we can come back to a simple childlike trust in our Heavenly Father. That is the place of peace. So we thought about this and teased it out in terms of this issue of trust. Let's also now think about the issue of contentment because there is a powerful application for contentment, particularly to us individually. Uh, We are trusting God to provide our needs, but not our greeds. As our Heavenly Father, God is committed to providing all that we need, but not necessarily all that we want. For what we want may not actually be good for us. Uh, Sometimes our anxieties are anchored more in our wants than our needs. Uh, Do we really have concerns about being destitute and thrown out onto the street? But we do have hopes in our hearts which may, uh, we may not want to relinquish. Now, I personally have very much felt the challenge of this over this last year. Uh, I've shared with you previously uh, the big hit our shares investments took a few months ago. 
Uh, for me, part of the journey of moving back to a place of peace is recognizing this distinction between wants and needs, uh, greed and need. Uh, it may not be for my good that our share investments generate a huge windfall. Now, I keep bringing myself back to that prayer of Agur in Proverbs 30, uh, which is a powerful and pertinent prayer. It says this, uh, Give me neither poverty, poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You see, having too much is a danger for all of us, believe it or not. Having too much may actually be destructive for me. I may become proud and self-sufficient. I no longer need to depend closely on my Heavenly Father to provide my daily needs. You see, a more hand-to-mouth existence for me may be of great benefit to me. It may give me a joyful experience of God's presence and provision that I wouldn't otherwise have if I had buffer. So, we pray. Father, give us our daily bread. We pray for provision. Next, we move on to the prayer for pardon. And not only should we pray for provision, but also for pardon. Look at verse 4. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. That daily confession to our Heavenly Father is vital for our spiritual vitality. As people saved by grace, we know there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that. Christ's atoning death has paid the penalty for all our sin, including future sins that we are yet to commit. As those trusting Christ, we don't need to confess our sins to avoid the Father's condemnation. But we do need to confess our sin to keep short accounts with Him, to maintain the relationship in a healthy way with Him. Because we know that our sin grieves our Heavenly Father's heart. And unconfessed sin can lead to distance in our relationship with Him. As Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And another reason we confess our sin to God is that it is part of the process of us changing. It's that part of the process of ongoing repentance and change. It was Martin Luther who said, repentance is for all of life. But did you notice, of course, that this petition doesn't just focus on us keeping short accounts with God. There is also another dimension to it. There's a second part to this petition, which isn't vertical but horizontal. Uh, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. There is this uncomfortable connection between the forgiveness that we receive and the forgiveness that we offer. 
And if we are to live in step with God's Spirit, we are reminded that we should not ask God to do something for us that we are not willing to do for others. Uh, We have stumbled here onto something that is vital to the health of our congregation together. Uh, Let's think about how this would apply to us. Is there anyone in this congregation towards whom you carry resentment? Is there somebody in this congregation who you are struggling to forgive? Unforgiveness is like an acid that will eat away at the fabric of our life as a church together. Unforgiveness fosters bitterness and division. Is there someone whom the Lord is calling you to forgive today? A few words on the practicalities of forgiveness. The first question we need to ask ourselves if we've been offended by someone is this. Is their offence against me minor enough that I can choose to overlook it and forgive them? Because we know, of course, that love covers a multitude of sins. You see, some offences against us may be minor enough that we can choose to overlook them. But that will not apply to all the offences against us. Others will not fall into that category because they remain in our hearts and they fester and we brood over them and they won't go away. Uh, We must therefore beware of pushing some offences into the overlooked category just to avoid having an uncomfortable conversation with the offender because that would be folly. Uh, Sometimes the offence is big enough that we can't just overlook it and we can't just forgive it in our own volition. Sometimes in order to forgive, we need to first give the offender the opportunity to ask for forgiveness. And therefore, it requires a conversation. And the attitude with which we go to them to have that conversation is vitally important. Uh, We don't go with aggression in our hearts, but rather with humility and gentleness. And we share with them what it is that they have done and how it has impacted us. And we give them the opportunity to repent and to seek our forgiveness. And if we don't feel equipped to have such a conversation, we may ask someone else we can trust to help us. And they may help us to work uh, through with words, which we can actually use to say to that person ourselves. Or they may actually help us by coming with us to speak together with us, with that person. And of course, there's another angle which uh, we also need to never lose sight of in this. Uh, What if we are the offender? Uh, What if we know in our hearts that we have done things or said things in the past which we know have been hurtful to others? It is our responsibility to take the initiative. To not assume, oh, they've probably forgotten about that. Maybe it didn't really impact them that way. But to take the initiative. To say, look, I did say this, or I did do this a while ago. It's a while ago, and I, you, it may have meant nothing, but it may have hurt you. And if, how did it impact you? And they may, well, that may well open up a beautiful and redemptive conversation where they can share it from their heart, and you can offer and receive forgiveness. So we forgive. We forgive for the health of the church. We also give for the health of our own souls, because, of course, bitterness will rob us of peace, And it eat away at us emotionally, 
spiritually, even physically. And if we refuse to forgive, it also does, of course, beg the big question of our own hearts. Have we truly understood and embraced the gospel of grace? Because we have prayed, Father, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. We come to the fifth and final petition. I'll be very brief on this because I do want to allow a bit of time for comments and questions shortly. So we'll move through this one very quickly. So we pray finally for God to protect us daily. So we confess our sins because we keep on sinning. Uh, but it, of course, it would be better if we didn't sin in the first place. Hence the third and final request. Uh, verse 4 continues. And lead us not into temptation. Of course, this does not imply that God is ever the one who tempts us, that is the dark fruit of our sinful nature. Uh, as James 1 verse 13 reminds us, it says this, uh, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. But God is able to protect us in times of temptation. He is even able to keep us away from a particular temptation entirely. And so we pray, lead us not in temptation. And in praying that, we are recognizing our weakness and asking for God's strength and sovereign intervention. So literally a few words in conclusion. At the Lord's Prayer is really the church community's prayer. And it calls us to a spirit of trust, to a spirit of submission, and a spirit of dependence. It is the clarion call of a community that wants to walk with God and to look for Him for everything from food to forgiveness. So let's make it our prayer as a church as well as individually. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, Lord's Prayer, which indeed uh, shapes and channels us to pray in a way which is, uh, uh, has great traction, uh, a way which is balanced, which focuses on you and your character and your kingdom, but also on our needs, uh, looking to you first and our needs second. Uh, help us, we pray. Uh, to follow this model of prayer, uh, not woodenly and literally, just reciting the words, but the essence of it, help it to more inform and model and shape our prayer lives, together as a church, but also individually. And we pray this for our good and, and your glory, and that you, through the fact that you would use us in your purposes as your people. Amen.